Hello and welcome to Altamore. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Mooney Jensen. And today we're going to climb up to altitude and talk about the border dispute between India and China high on the Himalayas. The world was reminded last June of a long-standing dispute between these two countries on this mountain range, where a bloody troop standoff in Ladakh, India, resulted in 20 dead Indian soldiers and a reported, however yet unconfirmed, 40 casualties in their Chinese counterparts. Only the whole thing has a weird, mysterious shroud. Even three months after the incident, there's incredibly little information about what happened and why it happened. The consequences, however, are really concerning because the relationship between India and China is at its lowest point in many years. And this isn't some remote problem that we're talking about. We're talking here about two large nuclear powers that have heavy armaments and are regional leaders, and they're looking for worldwide influence, and they're at odds with each other in this incredibly turbulent world. That's no small issue, and particularly no small issue from a world security standpoint, but also because of its inevitable political and economic implications. This occurs also at an interesting time when the U.S.-India relationship is the strongest it's been in such a long time. And we've seen Prime Minister Modi and President Trump revel in this mutual admiration society that they have going on. And not to mention then on the other side, the trade disputes and the political rivalry with China. So, Peter, let's try to understand today the causes of the Ladakh crisis, Chinese and Indian responses, and of course, the geopolitical fallout. And let's try to understand also how other countries react to the standoff and even take advantage of this ancient feud's revival. Later, we'll be joined by Dhruva Jaishankar, director of U.S. Initiative at the Observer Research Foundation and a frequent analyst about Indian and Chinese foreign affairs. And he will help us sift through the news and provide some insight about its consequences. Okay, Muni, let's let's start with just some context. We learned on June 15th, 2020, a violent standoff occurred in the vicinity of a road project along the LAC. Now, let me tell you what the LAC stands for. It stands for Line of Actual Control, which is this weird name between what is now the Indian and Chinese border up high in the Himalayas. And while several incidents have occurred here in the past, this one has ramifications beyond the act itself. That's true, Peter. What amplified this dispute is the widespread kind of fatigue and anger in India and everywhere about China's very aggressive foreign policy and the multiple examples of territorial greed and strong language, technological opacity, bully tactics. They've been demonstrated in actions such as the new security law in Hong Kong that we've discussed, clashes in the South China Sea and increasing pressure on Taiwan. And in South Asia, China has expanded its influence with massive financial aid to Pakistan and Sri Lanka. So there's no doubt India is feeling the encroachment. Yeah, and couple that with cyber attacks on the United States. And all that means that tensions are riding high and Chinese assertiveness, as it's uh, hmm. now called, has sharpened even under COVID and leaving experts to wonder whether it responds to, as our guest put it in a recent article, quote, opportunism, hubris, or is it reflective of a deeper insecurity, unquote. Whether it is, and whatever it is, it's creating an anti-Chinese pushback all around the world. China's muscles are flexed in South Asia, but its influence extends to Latin America and Africa through the Belt and Road Initiative. And 
and it's growingly importance in multilateral organizations. But it's very interesting that there has been a pushback against this increasingly strong and assertive foreign policy of China that is becoming both a reality and a threat to people. And and the U.S.-China-India triangle has also been redrawn. The incident wedges India at the middle of a relationship at a moment in which Washington and Beijing have their lowest, lowest point. And the attack itself that occurred high up in the Himalayas seemed weirdly like a warning against a strengthening of the U.S.-India alliance. You know, what's true, Peter, is India, which is an emerging power, is widely considered by the Trump administration as a strategic partner and as some a sort of a counterweight to China. And this was evident in the White House's very swift condemnation of China after the Ladakh events. And it seems like both Trump and Xi are sending hostile messages to each other via this incident. And it also underlines the practical facts that the U.S.-India alliance really lacks substance and it's mostly built on containing China. For example, India's response to the border aggression has consisted largely of banning dozens of Chinese apps, including the infamous TikTok, while Chinese soldiers have not budged from the border. So it's kind of an uneven response. And for the U.S., at least in this administration, India is not a robust enough ally against the common rival's predatory tactics. But none of this is new. India has been skeptical of China for decades before this recent brawl, and the main issue has been the border. But recently, concerns have grown also about China's opacity in trade relations, its compliance with nuclear policies. India's approach for the past two decades has mostly focused on containment, just like you said, Mooney. But but this stance is hardening because it remains to be seen whether anything substantial grows out of a U.S.-India counterforce or whether this violence on the border will escalate or whether China will back down. But it seems increasingly clear in New Delhi that Indians believe that something more substantive has to happen. So, Peter, it's a great time to bring in our guest. And Dhruva Jay Shankar is a foreign policy expert who directs the U.S. initiative, as I mentioned, at the Observer Research Foundation, and also acts as a non-resident fellow at the Lowy Institute in Australia. And he previously worked at Brookings India, the German Marshall Funds, and the Brookings Institution here. His commentary appears in Indian and international publications, including The Hindu, The Atlantic, Foreign Policy, Wall Street Journal, etc., and he's collaborated on multiple, multiple books and journals. So welcome, Druva. It's a pleasure to have you on Altamar. Thank you. So we've been talking about the bloody standoff in Ladakh, India, on the border with China. It happened over three months ago. What do we know and what do we still not know? Well, uh, I think what, what we do know is that starting in April of this year, there was a major deployment by uh, Chinese forces in, uh, in, in, in the boundary area near Ladakh and what's considered the western sector of the disputed India-China boundary. Um, this led to some clashes between India and Chinese forces in early May. Uh, and then a prolonged standoff. Uh, in early June, the, the two uh, uh, military commanders from two countries met and uh, had apparently agreed to a roadmap for disengagement. Um, and uh, then just a few days later, uh, on June 15th, we saw uh, we you know, all saw news that there had been uh, a violent stand of violent uh, conflict between the two, resulting in the deaths of 20 Indian soldiers uh, and an unknown number of Chinese fatalities as well. Um, the, since then, uh, there seems to, the standoff has continued. So there hasn't been a complete disengagement by both sides. 
uh, although they, they, they doesn't seem to have been a major, uh, major developments uh, since uh, that point. So that much is clear, but there's still a lot of questions on all sides. Uh, I think the biggest one really is, uh, you know, what is the motivation behind Chinese, uh, this Chinese deployment? Uh, it's still unclear uh, what they hope to gain out of it and why at this time. Uh, this, this comes after uh, two years or so of what was seen to be uh, somewhat uh, uh, better uh, relations between the two leaderships. Um, in fact, uh, Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, and uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi had met a couple of uh, a bunch of times in bilateral visits in an effort to to, uh, to manage tensions between the two countries. Um, so, I think the, the biggest question mark is really about sort of why why it's happening at this time when the coronavirus pandemic is still raging, including in India, which is quite significantly affected by it. Um, uh, so that would be the biggest uh, thing. Uh, of course, there, there are usual accusations about who started it, uh, even the incident of uh, in June as to who, who, who is primarily to blame for, for instigating that. Uh, the Chinese, of course, accuse the Indian uh, side, the Indians accuse the Chinese. Um, but uh, that, I think, is basically what, what is known, the biggest uncertainty really being Chinese motives. It's not been the first time that there's a border dispute in this in this region. What are the strategic properties at this point in the Himalayas? So, I mean, this is actually a massive uh, territorial dispute that goes back to the 1950s, in fact, between the two uh, countries. And part of it is really a legacy of uh, a sort of a colonial era legacy, which is that uh, there were very weakly uh, demarcated boundaries between Tibet and India, and the role of China uh, at that time, uh, it was the Qing Dynasty, uh, subsequently the People's Republic of China after 1949. The role of China in, in, in that is, is, very, is interpreted differently. Um, so and sometimes, China, for example, the Chinese government dismisses some of these old treaties as a colonial artifact that it doesn't respect. At other times, it opportunistically uses these uh, these old treaties to advance its claims when it's advantages. So I think that's only a natural, I mean, both countries do that to some degree, but you had this long undemarcated boundary. It covers, um, I mean, several thousand kilometers. Uh, it, it is sort of largely considered three sectors, the Western sector in, that abuts the Indian state of Ladakh, the Eastern sector, which is the uh, boundary of the state of Arunachal Pradesh, which China claims almost the entirety of that state. Uh, and then there's a small middle sector. There's some uh, relatively minor differences. Uh, so it, it's quite it's quite a long dispute. This led to a short but very sharp uh, border war between India and China in 1962. Uh, and subsequently, there was also violence in 1967 as well. Um, subsequently, pretty since the 1970s, this was um, dealt with largely peacefully. Uh, there were a couple of standoffs, including in the late 1980s. But from 1993 onwards, the two countries agreed not to resolve the boundary dispute, but to actually find mechanisms for managing uh, the boundary without it escalating into violence. Um, and so uh, it led to a series of agreements starting in 1993 uh, for basically uh, protocols for overlapping patrols between India and China, which, which continue on a, continued on a regular basis uh, throughout. So um, the question now is how much of that is intact? Uh, again, we've seen the the, the most violence, you know, the, the the most fatalities since 1967, uh, the first deaths on the border since the late 1970s. So it's it's quite a significant uh, development in that sense. And there'll be question marks now about how, you know what kind of protocols, how much trust can really be reestablished now uh, moving forward, even after the immediate standoff is diffused. Dhruv, as um, you yourself said, the biggest question is why? Mm -hmm. Why did this all occur? And beyond sort of the historical claims 
Uh, all of this is, has to be contextualized amongst what is happening today and certainly not only about Chinese interests in Pakistan or in Sri Lanka, but also sort of in, in Hong Kong, Taiwan, et cetera, et cetera. So why don't you, as our, as our analyst, here's an open invite to just give a stab at why. Why is China provoking this? Uh, in fact, a colleague of mine, Andrew Small, and I wrote an article in War on the Rocks. It came out about a month ago now, uh, where we tried to look at this precise question. You know, why have we seen this pattern of Chinese aggression at this point of time uh, in its near abroad? So in Hong Kong, in the South China Sea, in the East China Sea, with Taiwan, uh, and with India, and, and Bhutan, but they've reopened up again an uh, area that uh, Bhutan had considered resolved uh, in, in their territorial dispute. Uh, at the same time, also, uh, you know, greater, uh, at least diplomatic, uh, sparring with the United States, with Europe, and many other places, you know, Australia, Canada. The, if you look at the list of disputes that have that have intensified between China and other countries recently, it, it's actually grown quite significantly. So what we tried to look at is sort of what, what, what were the possible motivations? And I think the two questions we came down to were, does this reflect a short-term or a long-term change? Is this a tactical, uh, opportunistic uh, um, um, uh, thinking on, on, on the part of uh, China's leadership? Or is this a, a belief that there is a, a new a new era where China is ascendant, where it can get away with, with this kind of... Um, uh, activity. And the second question is really, does this come from a place of strength or weakness or perceived strength or perceived weakness? Is this being driven by a perception that China is vulnerable at this point and must act out against all of its adversaries at the same time? Or is this motivated by a feeling that this is an opportune moment to, you know, their, their time has come? Um, and so we, we try to look at all, all the, the different theories. I don't think we come down strongly on one side or the other. Um, but I, I do, I mean, my, my, my personal inclination is that it is driven a little bit more by vulnerability than a lot of outside observers uh, think uh, that it's coming at a time where China, you know, China has certainly been better off than many others, but it, you know, it, it suffered a 6.8% contraction in its economy. Um, it's this, the subsequent quarter, it's been a slight, a slight improvement and a uh, slight growth, but it's, it's still a very weak uh, recovery period. Um, you have a very fragile leadership at the top, while, while Xi Jinping is arguably the strongest leader in uh, two generations in, in China since Deng Xiaoping. Um, but there, there are dissenting voices that are sometimes now uh, discernible be below the surface. So, uh, you know, I, I think it is coming from a, a, some sense of vulnerability, at least on China's part. I and mean, we, it's, it's, again, hard for outside observers. And even, I mean, I, sp I speak to people who are very close China watchers who themselves are, are raising questions, similar questions. Druva, there, there is um, no doubt that this incident affects India-China's relationship, but what are the immediate, more regional, even global implications of this dispute? And give us some of the longer-term scenarios about how this incident could affect the relationship between what, in essence, are two nuclear powers. And this is not an unimportant issue for the world. I think the biggest consequence. I mean, so, the, let's take the immediate consequence, which is that, for the you know, uh, there had been avenues of cooperation between India and China amidst the competition, growing competition between the two. So, in in the recent past, particularly after two thousand eight, we saw uh, cooperation, for example, on global governance issues. Um, India and China working together to form uh, on BRICS and the BRICS New Development Bank on. The Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, uh, it's a Chinese-led initiative where India is the second largest uh, shareholder. 
um, uh, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and uh, other initiatives. We also saw a growing trade relationship, although um, as India came to realize, it was really one, quite one-sided. And so there was a very large trade deficit that India had with China. But I, I, this idea that there would, there would be both aspects of competition and cooperation between India and China has really been undermined by this. And we you know, public perception has really hardened by India against China. Um, and we've seen the Indian government taking a number of steps, and I, this will continue as long as the standoff continues, uh, to uh, impose economic costs on China for, for, for uh, its uh, forward deployment in the boundary region. Uh, these include the banning of apps uh, by, by, uh, for, for mobile uh, apps, um, 59 originally, and then subsequently others were added, um, including TikTok. And that has provided, a, I mean, I think the significance for the rest of the world is that it's provided a precedence that um, other governments, including Australia and the United States, are now seriously contemplating as well. Um, you've seen uh, China effectively banned from uh, uh, participating in public procurement contracts with, with the Indian government, so an area where, where China was actually quite competitive and quite active. So, I, I, And I suspect we'll see future uh, similar measures along those lines. What, what that'll do, I think, for the long run is actually... Uh, increase the the voices within the Indian government that are skeptical of China, increase their influence, uh, which were all, often always there, but sometimes in a minority. And it will, in, in some ways, I mean, I, I, won't, I don't want to overstate this, but I do think it will lead to greater harmonization and coordination between India on the one hand and the United States and its allies on the other. And I think the technological realm is one area where we're seeing this most immediately. But in some ways that was happening already because of, of the coronavirus pandemic. I think there was a lot of anger in India against uh, against China uh, for that. Uh, and the boundary uh, dispute has only accelerated and intensified those those feelings. So I, I think the larger geopolitical consequences, I think is it will it'll move India into closer uh, cooperation with, with the United States and other like-minded actors. Let's get into the China-US-India triangle. How will it be impacted, not just kind of economically, but strategically? And how will that shift the power structure? So we've already seen, I mean, I think we've seen in some ways in different phases, but really since the year 2000, we've seen a closer India-US relationship, uh, strategic relationship being forged. You know, there were some initial contacts after 2000, the 2005 new civil nuclear agreement between India and the U.S. actually opened up the doors to a lot, lot more. Uh, and then after about 2014, 2015, we, we saw another wave in some ways of, of deeper coordination. So, I mean, to, at this point of time, India has a, um, a security and strategic relationship with the United States that is on par and sometimes even closer than many formal U.S. allies. If you look at the number of exercises that they do, if you look at the, uh, the kind of uh, joint initiatives that they have, um, so uh, th this in some ways has been a sort of evolving process. What, what the deteriorating India-China relations will do is only accelerate that process even further. Um, so I, I do think that we're seeing, again, that, that, that happening. Uh, the question is now really about timing and, and, and uh, whether that would telescope. Uh, I mean, the point I've tried to make sometimes in, when, in meetings with, with Chinese interlocutors is really the ball is in China's court. If, if, if China were to... Uh, repair its ties, not just with India, but with other actors in the region, it would um, uh, it, it would give them less of a reason to want to forge a, a closer partnership with the United States. And actually, you would think that this would be a time when, when Donald Trump is president and somebody who is very skeptical of U.S. Uh, alliance commitments, that you would think this would be the, an opportune moment for China to actually 
uh, work to further undermine that. If anything, however, we've seen them pushing the relationship between Japan and the United States closer together, between Australia and the United States closer together, between India and the United States closer together. So in some ways, it's very counterintuitive. So if that ideal scenario doesn't happen and, and India and the U.S. end up if simplistically kind of joined, joining forces against China, is that enough to counterweight just China's very aggressive quest for global domination? Whether it comes from strength or weakness, it is something that, that is a, a deliberate strategy. And kind of what are the weaknesses of this alliance? It actually doesn't come down to capabilities, because if you look at the combined capabilities that China has on the one hand, and even if you were to include China's close, you know, close partners and allies, including possibly Russia and Pakistan, uh, on the one hand. And if you look at the, the the countries with which China has major problems with, on the other hand, it, collectively, the United States, Europe, in many ways, but certainly parts of the European Union has become more vocal as well. Japan, Australia, India, parts of Southeast Asia, um, the, the the latter completely dwarf the the, the former. Um, and so, I mean, I think there are question marks as to whether you know we may look back on this period and wonder whether China moved too soon and, and whether that was motivated more by domestic factors rather than than a sort of clear-headed view of, of its strategic um, uh, environment. The, the question really, I think, will come down to more to will than to capability. And that's why I think a lot of people are parsing uh, both what the Trump administration is doing right now, how much of it will survive uh, a November election, even if Trump is reelected, and also looking very carefully at what Biden and Joe Biden and some of his advisors are saying uh, regarding China. Um, and, uh, you know, I think at this point of time, um, there are differing views within the Democratic Party and within uh, amongst uh, Biden's close advisors as to how to approach the China question. But that would have consequences for a country like India. So I think everybody, I think, is looking at uh, looking at that and trying to see, you know, what, what will be the instincts and the orientation of a new uh, administration, whether or not, whether Trump wins again or whether Biden is, is elected. Regardless of the election result, and I think that, well, even though there's very little that's regardless of the election result, but from an India standpoint, does India stand to gain from this like new kind of self-interested friendship with the United States? Uh, I mean, India gains a lot from the relationship with the United States currently. I mean, it, it, depending on how you measure it, it, it is uh, arguably you know the largest trade partner, if you, t- if you include services as well. Uh, it's uh, one. It is, I think, perhaps still the largest uh, destination for Indian foreign investment abroad. So most Indian, most Indian multinational companies have the greatest exposure they have internationally is to the United States. Um, the largest number of Indian students abroad are in the U- U.S. The largest number of tourists that go abroad are to the U.S. So it, you know, if, if you take um, everything combined, it is India's single most important bilateral relationship. Um, uh, and again, if you if you add this, not just the economic and the the economic, the strategic, and the social elements together, so th- there's a lot that India con- has benefited from the relationship with the U.S. and will continue to benefit from the relationship with the U.S. Uh, it is not only the U.S. obviously, and I think it, if you take each of those factors, there are other countries that play a big role. You know, economically. Europe and China are still major factors for India. Um, on the strategic side, Russia remains a major uh, partner for India. But uh, I think on the, on, on the whole, if you look at the value of the U.S. relationship, it is quite consequential. Um, and I think from a strategic perspective, it, you know, if you look at which countries are the leaders in um, civili- civilian or military R&D, it, you know, the United States is still the world's leader in that. China has narrowed the gap in, in some domains, but but the U.S. remains the world's leader. So I, th- I think India, see, you know, uh, 
the Indian public certainly sees, um, you know, uh, uh, views of the United States are still off the charts high, uh, despite the the changes in, in government there, uh, changing governments in the United States. So I'm quite uh, uh, sanguine about the value that India sees in the U.S. It's very interesting how this change has happened over the decades, because certainly India was not, you know, in the 70s and 80s, and perhaps even part of the 90s was not part of the sort of U.S. sort of group of allies, but now it increasingly is. And, and this new Indian attitude of with the U.S. through thick and thin, you know, leads me to ask a question. I don't know if you read the other day a very interesting article by Robert Kagan, the well-known neoconservative writer, who wrote, are we ready to, all of us, defend Taiwan? And because it certainly looks like the Chinese every day are more aggressive and the perception of a weakening the United States could lead them to defend Taiwan. I mean, how, how much is India really willing to how far is India willing to go in this alliance with the United States? Right. So, you know, I think it depends. So I, it'll, I suspect it'll fall short of an alliance, and I hesitate to call it a U.S.-India alliance even in the future, um, because I think it will fall short of a mutual defense treaty, which is what the United States became accustomed to during the Cold War. Um, so whether it's with NATO, with Japan, the ANZUS Treaty with, with Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, you have a commitment on the part of the United States to commit its troops and its, uh, you know, its treasure and, and blood to protect, uh, defend another sovereign entity. Um, all of these, in some ways, were relationships that are artifacts of the Cold War. In fact, apart from NATO expansion, uh, the United States hasn't really entered into a, 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 a treaty alliance like that in the in the post Cold War period. So I don't think it'll come to that that point where India and the United States will automatically commit to uh, defending each other's territory, let alone third countries like like Taiwan. Um, could India provide support, um, uh, you know, uh, on, in various contingencies? Quite, quite possibly. But uh, I don't think this, you know, particularly in a democratic system that the U U.S. has and India has, it'll be very hard for a government to lock itself into uh, into a sort of open-ended treaty commitment like that. So, I mean, I, I think the question on Taiwan is is an interesting one. Um, uh, I think part of the thinking is. Uh, there, there isn't really an expectation in, on India's part that other countries, in, say, in, the, in, in, in a direct military confrontation with China, will come to its direct aid. Um, you know, Taiwan is not coming to India's direct aid. In fact, Taiwan actually recognizes a lot of China, the People's Republic of China's claims in, in territorial claims in India. Um, but I, there is a great deal of sympathy for, for, um, for other countries. I mean, the South China Sea example is, is, I think, more pertinent in this case, where India has been supportive of um, the, the, some of the, the disputed countries' claims on freedom of navigation and on, on sort of peaceful resolution rather than changing the status quo, which China is doing unilaterally. Um, but you know, that being said, I think there is a bit of disappointment that countries like Vietnam and the Philippines are not putting themselves out there more. And so I, you know, I, I, mean, I recall in 2016 when there was a permanent court of arbitration ruling on the South China Sea between the Philippines and, um, and China, that India waited to see what the Vietnamese statement was, uh, and Vietnam being a direct claimant. And when they found that that was a bit watered down, India itself watered down its own um, uh, statement on the issue. Um, and I, I think that makes sense. You know, it's very hard to, to take a strong. It, it, it doesn't really make sense to, to make a stronger claim uh, to to something than the country that's directly involved in that is willing to make. Dhruva, are you, uh, do you feel this dispute will now reduce in size or will it continue to increase and become acute? And the second question is, how does this directly impact 
the rest of the world in terms of security or trade or technology? I mean, both big questions. I mean, I think the, the first on the first point, I think we're looking at a long-term uh, forward presence by both Chinese and Indian forces right now. I mean, un- unless something happens in the next month or two, which is which is quite which is possible, um, uh, the, it, the, this doesn't it, it doesn't look like it's resolving itself the immediate dispute in in the near future. And if it does, if it lasts into the winter, it will have much longer-term consequences uh, f- uh, for the India-China relationship because it will it will mean um, I, I, the conclusion that India will draw from that is that China is taking on a strategic, has made a, a strategic change in its posture towards India. This is not a, a minor tactical, uh, you know, uh, uh, jostling for influence in, in, in very remote high altitude valleys, which we've seen in, in the recent past. Uh, this is going to be a fundamental, this will lead to a fundamental shift in the, in the tenor and, and uh, tone of the India-China relationship. Um, so I, I think it, a lot of it will depend really on, on whether a disengagement pl- a plan can actually be implemented in the next few months. But as of now, that's not looking very likely. On the second front, on, on you know what will be the long-term uh, consequences? I mean, I think it, it, in some ways you can see it as part of a larger pattern of behavior on the part of China. Uh, in the minds of many U.S. policymakers, it has actually uh, lumped India in with a number of other countries that are on the receiving end of Chinese aggression. Um, and that will have consequences also for um, um, India's relationships with, with the United States and with its allies. Um, but I think the fact, you know, something that sometimes is lost on this is uh, is not just, you know, while well, this is quite a significant development for India, this also marks perhaps the first time in uh, 32 years, 33 years, that China has um, uh, f- taken casualties um, in, uh, at least outside of a, a UN peacekeeping context. Um, so, uh, you know, I think this will actually have quite significant implications uh, for the perceptions of China. You know, this idea that, you know, for, for, for many years that there would be China's peaceful rise, that it would, it would rise without upsetting the apple cart. Um, that in some ways is really lies in tatters today. Dhruva Jaishankar, thank you so much for joining us on Altamar. Thank you. Muni, I think uh, this was a fascinating interview with somebody who's clearly sort of so well-versed, but I think one of the most interesting things is is Dhruva's theory that the entire gamut of Chinese aggression, including the aggression that's happening high up in the Himalayas, is part of not a sense of security and self-importance and defined by a new self-awareness of its strength, but rather a sense of she's insecurity, his stature, not being clear enough, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not sure that's right, but it is certainly the most interesting theory among many interesting things that Druva said. Absolutely. And I I also don't buy it. I think that what the only thing that China has really expressed to the world is strength. But, but if that was true, that it would explain, you know, all the flexing in Hong Kong and Taiwan and in many places. And I think that he found the perfect enemy in Trump to kind of bolster that image. So we'll see. It's also interesting to his question about whether this is a short-term incident coming out of opportunism or if this is kind of the beginning of a new, of a new, more aggressive policy. So lots of questions remain. It's amazing how these days a border dispute in the most remote region of the most difficult region in the world to reach high up in the Himalayas can have geostrategic implications so far beyond that place. 
And with that thought, we'll leave you. Until next time, thanks for joining us on Altamar. Altamar.